Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's see. What year did this come out? I know you don't want to hear this, but... Um, 62? 63? Yeah, so I was yeah. seven. Yeah, well, you're, re- you're reading more J. Ackerman than you are me. He, he completely rewrote it and used words I didn't understand. <laughs> well, maybe so, but you know, I wrote all those titles down in a little notebook, and that was my to-view list for many years. So, so even though it was at Corey, it was you. I thought so. Just because we do record, we're recording now, right? To, to play we, uh, is, oh no! Oh I my God! Josh to know he's, he's he's holding up. First, he held up a, 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 an issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland that but, printed a letter that I wrote and turned it into an article. Uh, Number and, 18, yeah. And now he's holding up a, a DVD, DVD of Infested, of Infested <laughs> which is the yeah. movie that Josh never talks about. <laughs> I try not to well, talk about it. You know, I'll also add, this means I'm talking to the only two people to direct Zach Galligan starring vehicles, so. Well. Is that true? No, there's Douglas well, Hickox and there's some other people. No, yeah. no, but I've never been in, I've never been in a room with someone else. Oh, with two people it. who oh, have oh. directed Zach. So, yes. you know, I'll tell them. Both did direct um, Zach in starring roles. So, uh, well, we saw Landis the other night after he did the show, and he walked up to me and goes, "I didn't know you had directed a horror film." <laughs> <laughs> so now he's watching it, and uh, uh, word's going to get around. Let's face it. <laughs> there you go. But I also, I'm also, you know, I also am a fan of history of violence as as well. So. Ah, thank you. So proving proving he is eclectic in his life. This is The Movies That Made Me, with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Well, I, I guess we might as well, let me, let me walk through, I mean, you've heard the show, we knew, you know I do these kind of half-assed uh, introductions, and I'm... I mean, I just, I just sort of grabbed a bunch of things I wanted to mention building up to my, my huge intersection with you. Um, uh, I remember first seeing your work in, in heavy metal, uh, magazine back in the day. And you did, in fact, we talked about the, Joe, you weren't there. Um, there was a monsters of masters of monsters, a masters of horror dinner the other night. I was there. Joe left early. He had other things to do. I left and, before Quentin showed up. Yes, you did, which which <laughs> which meant you got out before the sun rose because uh, he and Landis just squared off and just went on. And somehow this came up, um, but uh, we were talking briefly about the um, uh, the the graphic novel of 1941. Oh yeah, the Steven Spielberg film, yeah. which which I maintain is better than the movie. Have you? Do you know the graphic novel? I have not seen it. No. It's astonishing. Oh. Joe, I'll send you a copy if you'd like. Oh, oh yeah, I'd love to. Uh, Rick Beach and I were hired by Heavy Metal to do the graphic novel of uh, 1941. We had to steal the shooting script um, because it was a co-production of Columbia and Universal, if I'm remembering yep. correctly. 
And the rep from the production showed up at the heavy metal offices and didn't trust us with the script. Our job was to spend the next three months of our lives adapting it, but I don't know what they thought we were going to do. Um, we had to steal reference. <laughs> it was it was quite a crash course. And then Spielberg hated it when we were done. He called it a uh, Hieronymus Boschian nightmare. It is. He's completely sorry, right. Anaplistic. Even better, yeah. I that how how uh, so did this get distributed? Yeah, I bought it. Yeah. I was a kid. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was also a, a career lesson. Like within uh, uh, within a month, it was on the you know uh, blow through shelves on in the chain bookstores. Well, I, <laughs> I, once, I, once the movie tanked, you know that was the end of the graphic. I will have novel. you know, I shoplifted it the day it came out, and oh, that that's... that and the Animal House graphic novel thing. Was were the two greatest, I think, movie artifacts of uh, of of that era, but um, yeah, you were responsible. Um, uh, you created the magazine, the anthology magazine Taboo, from which sprang uh, From Hell by Eddie Moore, uh, Alan Moore, and Eddie Campbell. Also better than the movie, I would say. Uh, would you've say. you've got some uh, new sketchbooks coming out from Spider Baby Graphics, uh, monograph on the Brood, big horror guy here. Um, don't worry, I'm going to say his name. Joe's giving me the look. No, I'm um, sure by now. You've got a, a video piece on the new American Horror Project 2 box set coming out from Arrow. Um, and a new, coming out in a couple months from DC Vertigo, uh, an absolute giant hardcover collection of the series that, as a kid, I was just getting to the point where it was time to stop reading comic books. This was a different era, and, and it was mostly superhero stuff. I had discovered underground kind of independent things and and liked that but i was getting close to not going to the comic book store anymore and somehow i it's a long long story not worth telling i had intersected with the artist bill willingham and yeah, who came into a store that, that I, and i think i was even telling him i was getting sick of comic books and he said oh you need to pick up this new comic book dc's doing remember swamp thing and I start. I think I bought like the second or third issue that you guys had done. I was hooked for life. It's now a thousand years later. I'm still reading fucking comic books. It's your fault. Um, <laughs> but we have. Uh, uh, really, Forrest Ackerman drew all those. <laughs> <laughs> but the artist of Swamp Thing, of the great Alan Moore running of Swamp Thing, we have Stephen Bissett here, who who just I, uh, my life got so fucked up because of what you guys did. Genuinely. I mean, I loved horror comics. I read reprints of all those EC things. But Swamp Thing was the first time I ever read a comic book that was fucking scary. It was scary. What, 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 issues, what issues did you first get exposed to, Josh? Um, the one where I remember first just going kazart was uh, the... Um, and in fact, I, I stole the idea very early on. One of the first scripts I ever wrote was the Underwater Vampire one. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that page um, where it's a series of panels of kids in the background on the surf or on the shore while in the foreground, you see this kid in the water, just his head. And it's a series of panels and the kid's head stays the same, but he's getting paler and paler and paler in every shot. And you yeah. turn the page and the there's water, a giant yeah. pad, just one page panel from underneath. And it's vampires sucking all the blood out of his legs. And it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I, that was just amazing, amazing work. So, and that issue was actually drawn by Stan walk. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 oh wait, no, let's no. get him. Okay, we're done here. We're... No, 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 but I co-plotted co that issue. Okay. We were trying to do a monthly comic, and whenever I would fall behind, 
you know, Karen was, Berger, our editor, would orchestrate a fill-in issue. That was the one issue where I, I was being punished. Uh, I started turning in pencils, but they weren't quick enough. So Stan Walk uh, actually drew that issue. And the punishment was I had co-plotted that issue with John Tottleman and Alan Moore. So it did feel like punishment. Uh, so, <laughs> I, what a, I meant, feel like a know, complete... I work on part two. I, I did draw part two of that water vampire. Oh, okay. Because I feel like I'm interviewing Jack Kirby, and I just talked about my favorite Herb Trimpey story, which... No, no. no Stan Walk did a great <laughs> job. I, and that's not me dissing Herb Trimpey. But, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm proud to be confused for... Okay. <laughs> I'm going to edit all of that out. <laughs> anyway. Oh, and I also, I mean, and years later, I was at Comic-Con. I used to go before it became a movie thing, and you were doing a panel or a, a session. You were on your own. And I thought, oh, let's check this guy out. And it was a history of horror comics. And I thought, oh, this will be fun. He starts, tell me if I'm wrong, with 12th century China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 12th century Japanese ghost girls. It's a Japanese. Yeah. I am so sorry. And, Hungry ghost girls. And yeah. and I walked in, and I was just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. That was just, that was an incredible lecture. And that's so, why I'm teaching today. Um, uh, James Sturm, who co-founded the Center for Cartoon Studies, I'm going into my 15th year teaching there. Uh, he saw me give that talk at um, an academic gathering in Bennington, Vermont, uh, at Bennington College. And after the talk, James said, I need you. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my, the career I never thought I'd have. Now I'm a teacher. That's fantastic. I mean, obviously you're, you're, you're great at it. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, we have a previous guest, uh, Robert Kruskowski, uh, writer, director of the man who killed, uh, Hitler and then the Bigfoot, um, or as I call him, Bob Hitler, Bigfoot. Uh, and I, I mentioned to him that you were coming on and he lost his mind. He was just, oh. he, he couldn't believe how fortunate we were to get you on this thing. So, um, thank you for joining us. How, how's that for a rambling introduction? It certainly was. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I wish we had time to talk about some of the movies that made you, but. Can we? <laughs> oh, can I we suppose. I suppose we can squeeze it. A All few. right. But you're here. You want to talk about, um. Yeah, I took your title literally. Okay. And I put together a list of, I tried to think through the movies that actually shape, you know, the path I ended up taking as a storyteller, as an artist and, and writer. So if you guys are up for it, that's, that's, we'll that's what it's all about. It's going to be scary. I'll start by saying, you know, I never got to see the seven hour movie orgy. I hope before I die, I will get to see it. You'll get um, to see the five hour movie orgy. It's, it's been whittled, it's been whittled down since then. Okay, if there's ever a way to see it. And I also guess I should take off the table right off the bat Walt Disney movies, because like everyone in, you know, Joe's generation, my generation, and probably yours, Josh, you know, I mean, the Disney films were formative influences, the, sure. the animated features, but also, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That was a huge, big deal. Huge, yeah. big deal. Yeah. Um, but I got to take those off the table because then that would be all we're talking about. And that doesn't, that's not really accurate. And I'm also, there's a few others I'll take off the table by mentioning, if, you, if you'll if <laughs> indulge me. <laughs> um, you're you're going to take them off the table by putting them on the table? Well, I'm going <laughs> to put them on the table to knock them off the table and get to the, the okay. important ones. Like, there were certain movies like The Brain That Wouldn't Die that just never stopped being shown on television and so became important just because I couldn't get away from it. It's, you know... Um, and there were also films that I only saw parts of when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Like we used to, Joe, you've talked about this a few times on the show. Like it used to be if a sh if something was on television, 
that was the only chance you were ever going to have to see it, you yep. know? Yeah. So there were a lot of odd films that I only saw pieces of that had a huge impact on me, but I can't really um, put them on the table because I only saw parts of them. Like there was this Canadian film called Le Petite Aurora. Have you ever heard of it? The Little Aurora? No. No. It was made in Quebec, like in 1952, and it's about it's it's this infamous Quebec case about a little girl who was abused to death by her stepmother, and um, it used to show on late night Canadian television. We would get uh, Channel Six out of Toronto, Channel Twelve out of Montreal; those were English, and we got Channel Ten out of Montreal, which was a French station, and it would pop up on there, and I would actually sit through it in French. Because it was this little horror movie about this sweet, innocent little girl who is abused to death by her stepmother. And the stepmother is uh, electrocuted at the end of the film. Um, so that that's a movie I can't really say I saw as a kid because I don't understand French. But I saw it as a but kid. But it affected you, right? Those things would seep into your... Yeah, and it really, I think it was, it, I think I stuck with it the first time because the whole score is an organ. So it, I thought it was a soap opera. And then the abuse of the little girl kept getting more and more extreme, like putting her hand on a wood stove, tearing her hair out. I mean, just horrible stuff. It was, And then there were films that I only saw pieces of, like... Well, here's... I'm sorry, let me, if I could just... It, it, I tried to, um, it's called La, La Petite Aurore, L'Enfant Martyr. Um, oh, my French is directed by Jean-Yves Bigrat. Yeah, you are... Wow. We are starting out with a win. <laughs> right, right. And it, like I say, it used to be on French, you know, uh, Channel 10, uncut. Um, and then there were some that I would only saw pieces of. Like The Sadist used to be shown on television under a different title. Face of Terror. That was it. Right. I thought it was Profile <laughs> of Terror. Not that too. And I only saw like the last 45 minutes of it. And I thought it was a cop show or a crime show. And it scared me shitless. I mean, it was terrifying. And then it ended, and I looked in the TV guide, and there was no listing for any such movie, right? Like something else had been scheduled in the TV guide. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't even know what I had just seen. Um, That's an amazing performance, too, from um, who's Arch Hall. Arch Hall, Arch yeah. Jr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, it, that. so that's one that I didn't catch up with again until I think Johnny Legend and Rhino put it on video. Yeah. Um, and that may have even been one of your prints. I think it was my print. <laughs> and that's when I finally got to see the movie, but that was, you know, 20 years after I caught the last 40 minutes of it on television. Now on Blu-ray, I believe. Now it's on Blu-ray. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um then there were weird things like Cape Canaveral monsters. Oh yeah. Wow. Which is Phil Tucker. You know, the, <laughs> right, right, right. Phil Tucker. And that movie really haunted me as a kid. Again, I only saw a part of it. But it was the part where they're talking about <laughs> the the male alien infested corpse has just lost its arm, and the woman played by uh, Kathleen who Kath was, Catherine Victor, Catherine Victor, Jerry Warden's Jerry you know, Warren's squeeze, <laughs> and she's like berating him because he's lost his arm. And again, I didn't know what movie it was, but I stuck with it to the end, and that haunted me for years with my not knowing what it was, you know, Cape Canaveral monsters. And I only caught up with it again, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago when I found a bootleg of it. Wow. That's a weird movie. And another one was The Intruder, the one with William Shatner. 
Um, I saw about an hour of that when I was a kid. I didn't know what it was. Again, I thought it was some dr drama. I mean, it plays almost like an episode of Route 66. If you see it out of context, mm -hmm. what it is. And uh, it was listed in the TV guide under a different title. I think Shame. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, the, oh, that's the, yeah, the, the KKK one. Yeah, Shame and I Hate Your Guts. <sighs> and that's an amazing movie. It's, it's an great, incredible film. It's a great movie. It's the movie that made Roger Corman not make serious movies anymore. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. the is it was it really the one movie he made that made well, he no made money? It, it, yes, it's yeah. the one movie he made that made no money. Yeah. He, not it wasn't it wasn't just that it didn't make any money, he couldn't get it booked. Nobody, well, it was, nobody would play it because of what it was about. Which do you want to give you I mean it was Well, it's a, it's a, he took a, he took a small crew down south and he shot the, this based on a book by Charles Beaumont uh, about a, a guy who's a rebel rouser based on a real guy named John Casper who used to go down and foment a lot of trouble and, and race riots. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so William Shatner, in one of his better performances, um, plays this guy. And uh, they had to go down to different places down south and shoot pieces of the movie before they found out what the movie was about. And then they would move yeah. and have to go somewhere else and shoot more stuff. And they had a big speech, big, a big rabble-rousing speech that he gives, uh, which they had. he says one thing when the camera's behind him, when there's an audience there. Oh. And then when they turn around, he says... Stuff that if he said in, in front of those people, they would. They would this is a beautiful town you it's, have here. It's a what great, lovely it, people it's, it's you really are. It's really a terrific movie. <laughs> oh, it's, it's so it's good. And, th and then he tried to distribute it. It's, it's, so it's a savage indictment of racism in the South in the 60s. And he tried to distribute it almost exclusively to drive in movie theaters in the South in the 60s. Well, he, well, he, he sold it. It's his own group, right? Yeah. Yeah. He oh. made it, it was made for his non union company, but. Uh, he, he it was made for Pathé Industries, and they couldn't. They booked it in New York. It got some reviews. Nobody went, uh, and then he sold it to a guy named Mike Rips, who was an exploitation oh. guy. And Mike right. Mike right. called it "I Hate Your Guts." Trash. Yeah, he's the poor white trash guy. And Mike yeah. called it "I Hate Your Guts," and he right. played it in you know drive-ins and and uh, grindhouses and all that. But it, it was really kind of a lost movie until amazing film. about twenty years ago. Yeah, worth yeah. worth yeah. seeking yeah. out. These are just the ones you're taking off the table, though. So yeah, this is an off-the-table <laughs> movie. I'm gonna put on the table to not. We won't talk about it. Is the uh, I I went with some relatives when I was a preteen, and uh, I believe we were in Pennsylvania because my relatives had an accent that didn't sound like Vermonters, right? And they told our parents we were going to see one movie, but the movie we actually went to see was Two Thousand Maniacs at the drive-in, <laughs> and I. <laughs> You know, we were shell-shocked as the film went along, and I was also terrified that my relatives were going to kill me because they sounded like they were Southern to me. <laughs> the movie, right? So I, I just remember sitting in the back seat of their car, like traumatized by this film, which is a movie I now love. I think it's Herschel Gordon Lewis's best film. That's it's saying something. Yes, yes. It's saying something. So many but to choose from. Inning, middle, end, and it's very effectively put together. But I knew I didn't know I was safe until the moment that our oldest relative, who was the one in the driver's seat, the teenager with the license, turned around and said, "We're all making a promise right now. We're not going to tell any adult what we just saw." And <laughs> I, I don't even know what the second feature was. We left at the end of the movie. So I guess I could say Two Thousand Maniacs, you know, made a huge impression on me, but it it didn't really feed my creativity it just traumatized me <laughs> <laughs> but there's something to be said for that too yeah hell yeah there is there is so 
Okay, so now I'll start if you're okay. <laughs> We're not. We These will are not the talk on about the table movies. Those movies okay, are just finished. The table movies. I, the, I grew up with a holy trinity. Again, thanks to television, and I'll name all three. And this was the holy trinity because our local TV station, which was Channel Eight, Portland Spring, Maine, had these films in their, you know, the 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 package of of features that they had leased. And they would show them again and again. So I could watch them again and again. And it was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, mm -hmm. The 1940 Thief of Baghdad, mm -hmm. and Gordon Douglas's Then. And those three movies are like my holy trinity. Like those three movies taught me how to tell a story, the power of fantasy. You know, Beast was my gateway drug to every Ray Harryhausen film ever made after that that I could get, get even near. Um, and and Eugene Lurie's films from the time I was a little kid, you know, I would I would try to remember the name that would come up on the screen for the director and the writer, and I would try to find those movies. So thanks to Beast, I saw Colossus of New York, The Giant Behemoth, Gorgo, and even movies like Crack in the World that Lurie didn't direct, but he worked on. So so those were like the that's the holy three to me. Those those three films. Um, and I would only see them in black and white because we only had a black and white TV. <laughs> sure. Growing up. Um, so I didn't really see The Thief of Baghdad in color until, you know, I was in high school. And that was revelatory to finally see it in color. Um, and Thief of Baghdad is one of those movies I go back and revisit like every three or four years. I find it's a film that as I get older, it changes. I change. Um, and where, um, you know, Conrad Veidt's character was the villain when I was a kid. Now that I'm in my 60s, it's like, you know, Conrad writes onto something here. <laughs> you know, unrequited love and how do you make the person that you love, love you, you know. Uh, I just think those three films are like magical for my, very different reasons. My, mine of those is uh, Henry Higgins, terrifyingly. Um, <laughs> I find him less unsympathetic every time I see that movie. That's a terrible thing to say. Um, you but mean My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but well, he's God. still an awful person. I, I I want that out there. He's a terrible person, but not as awful as he was when I was a kid. But do you, do you find because um, uh, yeah, I mean, I saw all those on TV too. I saw them all black and white. I saw them out of sequence. I saw. God, I saw them all in theaters. I'm so. You old. saw them all. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if Thief of Baghdad was a, was a matinee. But there was something about seeing, especially the Harryhausen stuff as a kid. Oh yeah. Without any idea what it was, with terrible reception. Often with the sound turned down really low, so, so that so like you wouldn't wake your parents. <laughs> no one would know I was up and watching TV, let alone monster movies. That I, I don't know, Joe. You you found them in in theaters. Did they did they well, grab you the same way? Because to I, me, they were so illicit. Well, when when uh, when 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 them came out, Beast of Twenty Thousand Fathoms had been a independent movie that Warner Brothers bought, uh, and it made a lot of money for them, and they had a big campaign, uh, and and it involved lots of pictures of people running around with little balloons coming out like oh it's big you know and it's terrifying it's alive, it's alive. <clears throat> and so when they when they made them which was a picture that jack warner didn't want to make but they made because the previous picture made so much money they sold it exactly the same way the ads for them and the ads for uh, for the beast are almost the same ad except one's got a dinosaur and one's got giant ants uh but as a kid and it was also tremendous uh, use of television advertisement for that in that picture it was really you couldn't no kid in town n didn't know this picture was playing uh 
But it was a it was a very scary movie in 1953 because 54 uh, because it was an atomic movie. Right. It was about uh, the, the last line of the movie is like you know if this is what's happened since our atomic tests in 1945, you know what what's 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 the future going to be like? And yeah. you know it, it it gave you a healthy skepticism about authority figures and about uh, science and uh, mostly about radioactivity and all that stuff. And I, I think that, that those atomic fear movies really pushed my generation into what happened in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, because Three Mile, Mile Island is just a culmination of yeah. all the stuff that we had been afraid of when we went to see those pictures. Yeah, yeah. And they were reinforced at, you know, I, I was going to a little one-room schoolhouse in Duxbury, Vermont, but we were still doing the duck and cover. Actually. Oh, we were too. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and that just made those films feel even more, you know, relevant on the present and and scary. <laughs> um, because by then, you know, by the time you're in grade school in the early '60s, you knew getting under your desk just meant there'd be other radioactive dust on top of you from your torch desk. Well, you're going to die under your desk. <laughs> That's so funny. I had a, a, this memory of, um, of uh, from the 80s, um, New Year's, with some friends one night, drinking a lot, doing other things, and we watched First Blood and Them as a double feature. I have no idea why. And then proceeded to stay up all night long, having created new rules for Risk. Do you remember Risk, the game? Oh, yeah, the game. Where um, my girlfriend at the time had invented a version that was nuclear, where you could have a nuclear bomb. And we then added... Uh, every army got one Rambo that you could drop behind enemy lines and could take out, you know, 10 soldiers. And then we felt if you were going to have nuclear risk, <laughs> you also were running the risk of developing giant irradiated ants that Ooh. you could, could not be controlled. That so every improves the game enormously. It did. It, well, it also made it go all night, but every time you dropped the bomb, <laughs> you then had to roll to see if you got the giant marauding ants and they would, it was a lot of fun. You so, know, I also <laughs> say them. Them is so well written that I think that that's the film that taught me how to tell a story. Mm. And rudiments were there in The Beast and 20,000 Fathoms, but them and a few other films that were in the local TV package, like Rodan the Flying Monster, the early Toho film, you know, you set up a mystery. Yeah. Uh, it's it's almost plays like a police procedural until that moment in the desert in them when the sandstorm's happening, you actually see the first giant ant after you hear it. I mean, the way they teased out the impossible situation of giant ants and then made it seem so credible to you. Um, yeah, it's no, just, it's a, it's it's a, you're right. It's a it's a it's a model of how to make that kind of picture, and yeah. it was such a model that they that it was copied endlessly over and, and over and over. But the weird thing is that that it, that approach, that mystery approach, is what makes the movie great, and yet every single person going into the theater already knew. You already knew what yeah, the mystery was. And right. for the for the picture to still uh, work after the audience already knows what they're going to see, and yeah. still be interesting and still be suspenseful and still have good characters, is is quite impressive. It is, and I'm still, you know, it, it had a huge impact too. That here's a spoiler alert for those of your listeners who don't know: James Whitmore buys the farm in that movie, and right. it was such a shocker. That one of our two heroes, you know, yeah. doesn't make it out, and and it's still a powerful moment when I revisit the film today. Also, if you if you want to, uh, if you're a James Whitmore fan, or even if you're not, uh, if you watch him in the film, 
uh, he has the most uh, subtle ways of stealing a scene through, oh, yeah, throughout yeah. the picture. I, I no. mean, his performance is very naturalistic, and it's, I'm, I'm sure he didn't, after doing you know, Asphalt Jungle, I didn't think he probably thought of this as a plum assignment, but uh, <laughs> he's, he's really good in it. And uh, he has so many little ticks and movements, and, and you know how actors sometimes... Yeah, he's, he's with, like the American Peter Cushing. Yeah, exactly, props, something. always right. doing something with props, yeah. <laughs> no, he's quite fun to watch, just on its own. Yeah, and it makes his character endearing. Now, there were three other movies that I also saw on television growing up that I got to mention. One of them, and I think you guys have talked about it in one of your shows, or at least touched on it. Um, it was a movie that played under two titles on TV. I first saw it as Reign of Terror, but it was also The Black Book. Black Book. Man directed it. Oh, yeah. And well, you have, you have Black Book fans here. You have yeah, big Black Book movie, fans. And it kind of, uh, it kind of, uh, this is going to sound stupid to people, but it's true. It was like there was this little packet of French Revolution movies that involved crowds waiting for the guillotine blade to drop <laughs> that would pop up on television again and again. But Black Book was the one I would always watch over and over. Um, and But it was like this little subgenre of sort of bogus French Revolution movies. <laughs> um, well, that was Black amazing. Well, Josh had not uh, been aware. Joe turned me on to this of recently. This, of this one. And uh, well, I, I, now I want to say, do you know it's, there's a Blu-ray coming out. There's a, a Blu-ray coming out a couple from uh, Kit Parker. Uh, which I, I, it, and it's one of the best shots. Well, it's John Alton, who is great. Uh, yeah, working, working with Anthony Mann, who is great. Who is designed great. by William Cameron Menzies, who is great. Who is great. You know, and, and, it, and it's, uh, the screenplay is by Philip Jordan, who occasionally is great. So, yeah, and they have no money. And there's no money, but the way that they the way that they use the fact that there's no money is remarkable. I mean, the, the use of rear screen projection in that movie is amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and, and it, also shadows and yeah. doorways and tight close-ups of it's a it's a fabulous movie. And of course, it, also, it has and, it has Richard Basehart as "Don't Call Me Max." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's Robespierre in that. He also and this this made a huge impression on me. He gets shot right in the face. In yeah. Yep. And they showed it, or you thought you saw it, the way it was staged. And um, that stuck with me as well. I remember my mom dragging me to Gone with the Wind. You know, when growing up in the 60s, you would get dragged to these four-hour movies like The Ten Commandments. They were like ordeals to sit yes. through when you're 10 yes. or 11. But Gone with the Wind also had a, a soldier shot in the face. And I remember thinking, oh, that's like... That guillotine movie. <laughs> um, well, see, that's even yeah, even something like Gone with the Wind had moments of pleasure for people that, like just us. That just that moment. Yeah. People <laughs> like us. Um, the other two that I would see a lot as a kid, one mm. was uh, Night of the Hunter, uh, Charles Lawton's only directorial uh, sure. film. And I, I just think that, I mean, I, I choke up at the end of that movie every time. Just... Lillian Gish with her little pious soliloquy sitting in her chair brings tears to my eyes every time. It's a, um, it's a, it's a great movie, and it's a tragedy that uh, Lawton never made any other pictures because this one was such a flop. Um, but how, you, when you think about how, how could it not be with that plot? You know, yeah, and, right. and, and I saw that picture at a kiddie matinee. Oh, my God. And uh, with 10 cartoons and Night of the Hunter. And I'll tell you, I mean, it was first it, run. It's yeah, it's, 
stayed, it stayed with him. I mean, the, the, hey, kids. The scene where, the, where he, he chases the kids out to the boat and then he's oh, in the yeah. water and then he screams and it turns into this musical note. Uh, it, was, it was electrifying. I mean, there were kids crying. I mean, it was really a big movie. That's Yeah, that's Night of the Living Dead stuff for 68 yeah. back in 55. Yeah. So, um, so, and that also got me into reading Davis Grubb's novels. Uh, he's one of my favorite novelists. He he wrote the novel Night of the Hunters based on. And Fool's Parade. And Fool's Parade was the other film I was going to mention. That's one of my favorite movies from the drive-in era. I had my license by then, so I could go see it at the drive-in. And Fool's Parade was one of those movies that would come back at the bottom of the Dust to Dawn show, and I'd go again to see it. I, I don't know it at all. What? Uh, it's, oh, uh, it's James Stewart. Wonderful. It's wonderful. It's Jimmy Stewart as a one-eyed, um, uh, a one-eyed convict who's getting out of jail, and he's collecting a check. They're, 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 uh, they've held money that's somehow his. I can't remember off the top of my head. And um, there's a, a backwoods sheriff who's going to take it. And Jimmy Stewart is traveling with this ragged group. It's Kurt Russell when he was a teenager and the great Struther Martin, who's obsessed with the store they're going to open. So they're like scrambling across this junkyard and Struther Martin is picking up empty cans and going, we must carry this brand of peas in our store. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just a wonderful film, uh, Fool's Gold, um, wow. uh, Fool's Parade. I'm sorry, Fool's Parade. Um, Andrew McLaughlin, director. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm. It's a great one. Fantastic. It's a great one. It's it's a really fun movie too. Great characters. And the third in that particular trinity was Robert Aldrich's Attack. Oh yeah, <laughs> another picture I saw when I was a kid. No the theater at a, at a Saturday matinee. And when, when Jack Palance gets his arm run over by a tank, oh, let me tell you, oh, yeah, a, that lot is. Of, a lot of squealing in the audience. No, I, I, no, no, don't do it. Oh, yeah. And then it gets worse. <laughs> he shows up at the top of the stairs with his arm in shadow. You're afraid he's going to step out of the shadow and you're going right. to see what's left of his arm. <laughs> I, I grew up in a military family. My dad served in four branches of the service. Um, so I grew up, you know, seeing a lot of Westerns and a lot of war movies. And I attack was the one that stuck with me because my dad hated it. My dad was so <laughs> angry at the end of that movie. And for me, that movie galvanized every fear in the military. I had already been, you know, it had already been embedded into me by growing up in a military family. It just confirmed for me, I never am going to join the service. These guys are idiots. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and that got me into not only Robert Aldrich's films, but a lot of my favorite directors, Anthony Mann, Don Siegel, Bud Boetischer, Sam Fuller, Larry Cohen. I felt like Aldrich sort of introduced me to that whole very pragmatic, very male approach to storytelling in films. And Sam Peckinpah, of course, I would have to list in there. But it all started with seeing Attack as a mm. kid. Um, just incredibly powerful movie. And it's also about adult corruption but the way it's dramatized even as a kid i totally got it you know i totally got that eddie albert was the most present dangerous adult but that lee marvin was even somehow worse as the laid-back commander who just keeps his hands clean he knows how badly it's going to go and he's just going to steer clear until it plays out and these were really strong adult concepts to have you know, fed into your your heart and brain when you're a kid. That's just an amazing movie, I think. Hmm. So and, and and not not as well known as it should be. No, no, I think Attack should be required viewing. You know, everyone talks about Kiss Me Deadly, which is an Aldrich film I love, but I think Attack is 
an amazing piece of work. Um, and as a kid growing up with war comics, I mean, Jack Palance is playing Sergeant Rock in that movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's essentially the beginning of Easy Company and Sergeant Rock. Only it's if it's if things really had gotten bad. Right. <laughs> um, so those are kind of the those are the ones I grew up with. And then the horror films, because horror movies are what really shaped me. Uh, the first Baba, Mario Baba film I ever saw was Black Sunday. And that opening four or five minutes. I mean, that just I I had never even thought things like that could be portrayed on the screen. Um, and you kind of get lulled into it. There's like this witch trial going on and Barbara Steele is tied to a stake. And then they bring up that mask and you see the oiled muscle. Right, right, right. It's been so long. Oh, was... no. Yeah. <sighs> um, but the weird thing about Black Sunday and the reason I want to mention it is uh, it not only was my gateway drug to all of Mario Baba. And I think Baba's had a bigger influence on me than any filmmaker other than Sergio Leone is that it was the most religious film I'd ever seen. And I was raised Catholic. And so we were force fed, you know, the greatest story ever told and King of Kings. I never felt religious from those movies. But Black Sunday was such a convincing dramatization of evil threatening to overtake everything. And then it's all swept aside at the end by the bond between these two people who barely know each other and the nominal hero and Princess Asia, uh, that I, it, to me it was this really spiritual movie disguised as a horror show. Huh. Um, and it really, I found it profoundly moving. And I didn't see another film that affected me that way until I was 17 and I saw um, The Devils, Ken Russell's The Devils. Oh. I also think is a profound spiritual religious film. Yes, but yes. like Baba's Black Sunday, it's like you've got to go through that that corporeal nightmare of the corruption of the flesh and and you know what forms do, does evil take in our world before you arrive at you know <laughs> I can't even say good triumphant. It's just to me those you know Black Sunday was the first religious film I saw that really hit me you know, that primal way. Um, so there you go. And I saw on a late night channel six Canadian television channel six on Monday nights had a show listed as science fiction theater. They would show the films complete uncut, no commercials. Wow. So my first exposure to black Sunday was, wow. you know, it was the AIP version, uh, but it was vivid. You know, it was really vivid for me. And to start watching at midnight was perfect. Yeah, somehow I, I doubt they would be running the Devils in that slot. <laughs> no, no, no. The Devils <laughs> until uh, I think it was '73. It came to Burlington, Vermont. I had my driver's license by then, and The Exorcist was the big new movie. But it wasn't going to play in Vermont because they were rolling it out city by city. So one of our local theaters in Burlington said, "Prepare yourself for The Exorcist with the Devils." <laughs> <laughs> because when the Devils had come out, I was 16. I wasn't allowed to see it. Sure. It was rated X when it first came out. Yeah. I can't. No, that still never, is. It never no. played on TV. Did that ever play on TV anywhere? Uh, it might have been on the CBS late movie and I like a uh, chopped up like version. The oh my God. They used to show strange stuff on the CBS. They did. They did. They did. Very odd things. That's such an amazing uh, film. And, and, I, and I, I agree with you. It, it's, um, I hadn't thought of Black Sunday that way, but, but that makes sense. I mean, the way. It's it's always fascinating to me that that you know, uh, for movies that are reviled as being so sinful and so evil that that 
um, movies like that can have an effect on someone like you. They, they, they do to me too. I think the devils is a profoundly religious film. I'm not someone, yeah. I'm not someone who's moved by that. I, I thought, um, last temptation of Christ was the first movie I had ever seen that as someone who was raised without religion made me go, Oh, Oh, there's a, that's a, that's a real story. This is a real interesting guy. These are the films that get condemned mm-hmm. that actually speak some kind of profound truths to people, but to get to those truths, you have to walk through some very ugly territory. I I also think Black Sunday shaped uh, my approach to storytelling because Baba's films they often won't make linear narrative sense. Yeah, do they ever? <laughs> Kill Baby Kill is all about sort of fracturing any linear narrative approach, but um, but everything in Black Sunday made visual sense. Like I I understood every time I saw it. Like visually, that narrative worked cohesively and perfectly. And there were moments in it. I mean, there's the moments people talk about in Black Sunday, but for me, it was things like those shots of dead Asia's face when her eyes are swelling into the sockets. You know, it's like it's this physical feeling of resurrection that that culminates in that great scene of uh, Javuto climbing out of the grave. Um, I just think it's a I still think it's a brilliant movie, even with whatever lapses you might find as an adult watching it now. Uh, I just think it's an amazing movie. Joe um, just looks happy right now. I'm, I'm, I've, I've, <laughs> it's like he's he's reliving my childhood. <laughs> good, good. Well, I, you know, and a lot of these films, as I as I get older, I, I read about in Castle Frankenstein, and then later I found out, Joe, it was either you or Bob Stewart who'd mm-hmm. written the reviews that had me tracking down those movies. So then oh, it was then um, it was all for it was it was a good thing. It was not for naught. No, no. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was not. Um, uh, so then, uh, then I'll have to talk about uh, a few more. Horror of Dracula was my introduction introduction to Hammer films, and I think Horror of Dracula is still just a brilliant movie. Um, from the first shot, opening credits, and that score, that musical score comes on. I am in the grip of that film and that and th- those uh, those characters in that that story, and right to the way it ends. I mean, it's just, I just think that's like a perfect horror film, particularly for that era in the late 50s when, when Hammer was first hammering that stuff out, pun intended. <laughs> is that, this is where we get a lot of hate mail because I'm, I'm terrible hate. at this stuff and I really enjoy those movies, but that's the first Christopher Lee one, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, sh- I should first, know first this. They, first, but, Hammer decided. he doesn't talk. Hammer right? decided to do, no, he talks. Oh, what's um, that? Oh, yeah, Quite eloquent. No, at first they decided to change their modus operandi and try some science fiction with the Quatermass pictures, and they did that, and it was successful. And then they wanted to make a Frankenstein picture in black and white, uh, as they had been doing everything else in black and white. And uh, through a whole lot of machinations with Max uh, Rosenberg and Milton Sabatsky, who had a version of the story that they didn't make, uh, they came up with the Curse of Frankenstein, which was made uh, in in color, um, and it was pretty gruesome for the time, and got horrible, yeah. horrible reviews yeah. from the 
particularly from the British press. It was like, they just thought it was the worst thing ever. But it was very popular in America and, and was made with some of Seven Arts' money, and Warner Brothers had some money in it. So uh, they followed it up with Horror of Dracula, which I think is the, the best one of the, those pictures from that period. Uh, and partly it's because they knew their limitations. They knew they couldn't afford transforming into bats and all this other stuff that was going to be too expensive. So they simply wrote it into the story that when Professor Van Helsing is doing his dictation, he explains the stuff that they can't do. They can't turn into wolves. They can't. Right. They uh, can't turn into bats. They they, this right. is a myth, you know. Uh, and but and, doesn't he in later films? Not sure. That, not their films. I don't think they ever did. They. I don't. Not another Hammer films. They had. I don't think he became a bat. There was a bat in uh, Scars of Dracula, I think. But, um, but I don't think of those films as those are those are separate from Horror of Dracula, which is its, I, it's, its own unique piece by itself. Uh, everything about it is it, the the ending is great, um, oh, and it's so it, amazing. And the yeah. the score is fabulous, and it's beautifully photographed. It's really well acted, uh, and it's it, it it really surprised a lot of people who thought that horror movies were mostly junk. And it it started to get good reviews. It started to have these quotable reviews. This picture is really good, and that sort of I think upped the level of movies that were going to be made about that subject after that yeah i don't think we would have had the roger corman richard matheson post cycle without no uh, i think the hammer the hammer success is really what started it all off because aip was making two black and white movies uh for double bills and when roger finally went to them and said let's let's make one in color instead and have it be good and, right. it was, and that was because of what had been and, and you know uh, supposedly uh, one of the reasons that Hitch, hitchcock made psycho was because he saw the william castle movies making a lot of money yeah um, you know, and it was like, well, wait, wait a minute, I, you know, you can, I can do that. I can do that, you know, and I won't have to spend a lot of money doing it. Yeah. And it was also films like, you know, uh, Clouseau's uh, Diabolique, yeah. You know, which yeah. had, which I, only in retrospect did I find out had really been quite a success on the in the foreign release circuit and even bled into mainstream theaters. Well, yeah, because there's a dubbed version that was playing and, and uh, it, was, it was a popular movie. I, I didn't get to see Diabolique until uh, my late high school years. I went to a college showing of it at, at University of Vermont, and I was sitting next to this statuesque blonde. You know, here I am, like, 17, and I'm sitting next to one of the most stunning women I've seen in my life up to that point. And at the end of the film, when he gets out of the tub, she dug her nails into my arm until my <laughs> arm was bleeding, and I didn't care. It was <laughs> made the ending even better. Um, uh -huh. Go ahead. Uh, uh, right. No, I was just saying, I, th I think my, I'm, I'm thinking about it here while you're talking because I love the Hammer films and I have multiple import box sets and oh, go through them. But, but I, think, I think the thing is, I realize it's, it's, I saw so many of those the first time on TV in that truncated, coming in half an hour late, leaving 20 minutes early. Yeah. So yeah. Christopher Lee is my Dracula. You know, well, this but is the, but they all kind of blur together finally. No, this is the, this is the one. You really don't need to see I, the other yeah. ones. Yeah, I think he would agree, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and there's things I love in the later ones as well. I mean, the later ones I saw in the theater as they came out, but Horror of Dracula is the one that I got to see repeatedly on television. We had a color TV set by then, so I got to enjoy that, that aspect of it. And even when it was cut, I didn't care. It still worked, you know. They would usually cut the spatters of blood, the staking, and you know, frames out of the, the meltdown climax, but the movie still works like a, 
like a juggernaut for me. So, um, and another film I got to mention is Gorgo. I loved Gorgo. Like Gorgo, you know, Gor I, I'm a- How old were you when you saw Gorgo? I, when I first saw Gorgo, I was eight. And I there's saw a, it, coincidentally, there's an eight-year-old boy in the movie. <laughs> and he's Irish. They you know, knew what they were doing, Joe. <laughs> and it was the perfect dino movie for a dino kid because Gorgo's mom wins. <laughs> you know, you're so sure as you're getting toward the end, they're going to kill him. Nope, she wins. It was just like my heart soared at the end of Gorgo, and it does every time. And I also loved those Charlton comics. That, that followed Gorgo, you know, Charlton had a writer named Joe Gill who was scripting the comics and it was always Gorgo and his mother. They just want to eat and be left alone. And Steve Ditko drew about half the run and then. Oh, wow. The, really? Oh yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Steve Ditko art, but also uh, these artists who signed their work Montez and Bach. It was M O N T E S and Bach was B A C H E. It was a penciler inker team. And I, I loved all the Gorgo comics. Uh, that was the one taste of a franchise I got to enjoy as a kid growing up. You know, seeing Gorgo the movie, and then I could still pick up the comics on the newsstand. But you probably yeah. weren't exposed to the Gorgo paperback. I was. It was the dirty paperback that was... Uh, yes, you have talked about yes, this. Monarch, <laughs> Monarch books. Monarch books are their filthy, filthy Monarch adaptations. Books, what, they, they made these <laughs> deals with these companies to do these novelizations, and I'm not sure that the people who actually paid them ever read them. Well, uh, Sidney Pink did because he sued them did he? for Reptilicus. Well, which is Sidney really Pink. filthy. <laughs> oh, it is. It's a completely <laughs> pornographic novel, you know. Well, for a 1962, you know, novelization of a monster movie, it's pornographic. The Stranglers but... of Bombay, what is particularly dirty, I remember. I really? That. Oh. Because so that movie is suggestive. Yeah. So and Brides the Brides of Dracula. Dracula. That's the other one. Rapes a woman in yes, the, I know. And they apparently they were inspired to have him rape somebody in a later picture because of that book. Because of <laughs> right, Frankenstein <laughs> must be destroyed. Yeah, I can see that. Um, well, yeah, I am. Um, I'm. I'm on Amazon. I did not realize this. The um, the Ditko issues of Gorgo. Are, oh, they're collected. Uh, they're collected. Hardcover. Yeah, in hardcover. Yeah, yeah. You um, need to pick it up, Josh. Script by Joe Gill. Uh, uh, Good but God. you need the Gorgo paperback more. <laughs> I well that I yes I've I've looked for some of those there. They go for choice of and they all eBay. had a particularly odd smell. <laughs> there was something about yeah, something printed, about some, printed in Derby, Connecticut. And there's something about the ink that they used, which was yeah. you could. And, and I'm sure these were they probably also did pornos in addition. I'm sure. Well, no, actually, you know what they did that made a lot of money for them is Charlton's bread and butter with those song hits magazine. Oh. Right? That would publish the lyrics of the top 40 songs. That was their bread and butter. Really? It was a it was a um, mob-owned publisher, and um, their bread and butter were the song hits magazines, crossword puzzle magazines, and then on the side, they did the comics and those monarch paperbacks. So... <laughs> um, I hope, and those they, paperbacks are amazing. I, I, I always thought that um, it was the only dirty paperback I didn't have to hide. I could just leave it on my shelf. Right. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> knew. Right? <laughs> so, I, speaking um, of Charlton, I just I want to say I always thought someone should try to do something with their superhero characters. That would be fun. Trying well, to. they did. They I'm joking. I'm kidding. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> So then there were three French films I grew up with, I got to mention. And again, this was because uh, two of them are because of Channel 10, the same channel I'd seen Le Petit Aurore on. Um, and one of them, though, was because of 
um, educational films that would be shown in the classroom when we were kids. So the two I caught on TV were I was flicking the channel dial around when you didn't have remote, when you had to physically get up, walk to the TV and turn a dial. And this face appeared on the screen of what looked like a werewolf, this beautiful werewolf. And I, oh, stopped, I know. Yes. And I sat back and I saw for the first time most of Jean Cocteau's Beauty, Beauty the, the Beast. Beast. Yes. And that Jean Marais creature in that, the Beast, I mean, is what grabbed me. And I was probably nine when I first saw that. And I watched it in French. I didn't understand French, but it didn't matter. I mean, I was just, I knew the fairy tale, of course, um, from reading, you know, the little golden book of Beauty and the Beast or whatever. And uh, that movie was my doorway into French films. Um, mm. I also caught um, our late night TV show out of Burlington, Channel 3, showed Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. Which is Georges Franju's Eyes Without a Face. And oh. I loved it. And I had I only knew of it because of that Castle of Frankenstein spread, right? And there was that full page shot from the press book that said, you know, it's like a cross between Tennessee Williams and I don't remember what the other thing they, they named in the promotion. Um, so Eyes Without a Face had grabbed me. And then on channel 10, two weeks later, it was on in the afternoon. So I watched it in French because I had just seen it in English. And they got to the surgery scene, and it kept going. <laughs> the one that had been shown on Channel 3, he starts yes. cutting around the face, and it goes to a commercial. This kept going until he lit, lifted the skin off her face. Uh, and this was the moment when I realized two things. A, they're hiding shit from me when they show these movies. <laughs> and uh, uh, C, this movie is one of the greatest things I've ever seen, because it really you know, really got into the marrow of my bones. That, that's just a really beautiful and disturbing movie. Yeah. Um, and the other French film, because of classroom showings, was um, one of our English teachers in seventh grade showed us uh, an Ambrose Bierce short film called The Mockingbird. Oh. And I'm watching this, and I realized that I recognize the actor who's the Confederate soldier, that he was in the occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge that had been on the Twilight Zone. And it's uh, Robert Enrico's Ambrose Bierce film, which was released in France as a feature, A Cour de la Vie, In the Midst of Life, which was the name of the Ambrose Bierce short story collection the stories were taken from. And it was three of those stories. It was The Mockingbird, which is about these two brothers who grow up and they teach this mockingbird to whistle a certain tune. Uh, and this is the framing story of a soldier, a Union soldier on watch at night he hears something, he shoots, and then the next morning he goes to find the body, and it's his brother. It's his twin brother that he had taught the Mockingbird to sing, and he hears mm. the song at that moment. And then the second story was Chickamauga, and it was a story of a little deaf kid who wanders from his home, and there's just been a, a battle. It's, again, a Civil War story. And this little kid starts playing with the soldiers who are all wounded. They're trying to crawl to a stream, and they're covered with blood and they're dying or dead and this kid is riding them like they're horses or playing with them like they're clowns and then at the end he leaves the battlefield and he goes to his home and his home is burned down and his mother's dead the battle had moved on while he was playing and he's lost everything and then the third story was the current at Owl Creek Bridge the one that you know won an Academy Award that Rod Sterling showed on a Twilight Zone and 
the reason I'm mentioning it as a classroom thing is I saw the films out of order and I saw the credits at the end of Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge when it was shown in an English class uh, two years later. And the credits listed the other two stories, only it was the French titles, Mockingbird oh. in French, Chickamauga. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, this was a single movie. This was like Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Right. It was the Ambrose Bierce stories. Um, and that's a lost film. Uh, it came out briefly on DVD in France about five years ago, and they botched the release. The stories are out of order, and there was a manufacturing glitch with the disc. So I bought that uh, Robert Enrico set that just came out in French on DVD because I wanted to see The Adventurers, which you talked about, yeah. Joe, during you know one of the uh, trailers from Hell. And they had the shorts on there. As shorts? Uh, yeah, just the three shorts. So I've got a friend who's kind of putting it together for me into a DVD-R so I can watch it again as a feature. Um, but the, but, fe the feature was released in New York, because that's I did see it in New York. Um, really? Yeah, uh, in whatever year that was. Um, 63 or 64 is when it played in, it's in the Europe. Same, it's the same year that it was uh, used for The Twilight Zone. Okay, 63 then, yeah. I would think. And what did you think of it? I, 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 well, I was a huge Robert Enrico fan already. I, I really, I really like his work, and uh, um, I, I was very taken with it. it it's yeah. it, Chickamauga, particularly, is really very unusual, and 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 the, the use of natural sounds uh, and his composer that he always uses. Uh, it, it's um, it's it's really a, a movie that should be better known, but it's kind of hard to find. I, I'm I'm hoping that um, you know a label like Arrow Films or one of them will will rescue it mm -hmm. um, because that that one release out of France, unfortunately, I got to watch it once <laughs> on the disc and then it wouldn't play anymore properly. So it was like uh, planned obsolescence. <sighs> planned obsolescence. So that that's one I would I would recommend to your listeners if they can find a way to see it. I love Enrico's films, um, everything from. You know, Accord de la Vie up to the old gun. Yep. Uh, the oh, the old gun. The old, the old gun. gun is a terrific movie. That is so hard to find, but so worth trying. It's out. Yeah. Is it out? I oh, wonderful. Okay. It's out. It's out. It's terrific. That used to be so hard to find. It's <laughs> no, it was until yeah. everything's hard to find until you can. Until find it's it. not. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now I'm halfway through my list. Should I stop? <laughs> Holy crap! Are you serious? I all your airtime, but oh. I'm halfway through my list of the movies that made me. Well, cut to the cut to the bottom. <laughs> cut to the bottom. Maybe we should cut to the uh, the. Uh, well, we, we got just, we got a little time. We can give a little. I could just run through the titles now. I'll keep going. Uh, <laughs> this is a movie I caught on TV, and I know it's well known now. But when I caught it on TV, it was it was late night TV. Um, it was not listed in TV Guide, and it so blew me away that I I did something I'd never done before or after. Is I grabbed my notebook and I wrote down the whole film. Because when I looked in the TV guide and in the newspaper, there was no listing for it. And I thought, I won't believe I saw this movie if I don't write it down. And it was Carnival of Souls. Uh -huh. Harvey, Carnival of Souls. And the fact it wasn't listed made it even more magical somehow. Like, did I hallucinate this movie? <laughs> but I knew I hadn't because, you know, I was wide awake and I just watched it. And I, the next morning I went into school and I tried telling a couple of my best friends about it. And they didn't believe me. One of them actually went home. Checked the TV guy and came back the next day. See, you're making it a lie. <laughs> um, and one of my friends went so far as to, because he was Twilight Zone literate, he said, oh, you must have just seen that Hitchhiker episode and you you fell asleep and you dreamt this movie. <laughs> um, 
And then, you know, I it never got mentioned in monster magazines until Calvin T. Beck's review of Night of the Living Dead in Castle Frankenstein. And he didn't talk about Carnival Souls. He just sort of offhand said, you know, th this was influenced by movies like Invisible Invaders, Carnival of Souls. But just seeing the title in print was like, ah, vindication. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and then when I was in college, I went to college at Johnson State College uh, in Johnson, Vermont, and I seized control of the student film program in my first semester because I realized they had money and no one was using it, right? They would blow their budget bringing in Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> Who needs to see that? It's in the theaters right now. So I booked a whole film program and I went into the, there were all these 16 millimeter catalogs, like budget films. And they had, one of them had Carnival of Souls for $10 rental. So I rented it. We showed it on campus and people loved it. We ended up showing it three times that day because the word spread. I just saw this great movie. You know, people would do bongs and smoke pot in their room and come back and say, can you show it again? <laughs> and uh, I, I love Carnival of Souls. I just think it's this brilliant one-off movie. It's sort of like Night of the Hunter. He never made another feature, Herc Harvey. Mm -hmm. But man, that movie just really worked for me. So How do you... I'm, what, uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. I haven't seen it, but I, I always think of it sort of in conjunction with Night Tide. It's, it's, just, it's similar. They're very totally similar. And similar. But Night Tide actually had a distributor in this picture. Right. Supposedly had a distributor. I saw it in Philadelphia at a really low-down theater in a terrible neighborhood on a double bill with the Devil's Messenger. Oh, uh, and they were both Hertz Lion. Yeah, both Hertz Lion. Uh, and, um, and it was fascinating. You know, I mean, it's, it's, much of it is student film-ish. Uh, but, sure. but, but, but even that works on this really sophisticated yeah. level. I love that sequence when she's alone in the church playing the organ and Harvey begins to intercut things like not just the stained glass windows, but like the altar boy's robes, you know, shifting in a little breeze that's going through the rectory or something. And then the camera like drifts to that, that amazing pavilion on Salt Lake and goes into the pavilion until you're zooming in on the face of the man in the water, the character Herc Harvey plays as he opens his eyes and she wakes up out of this sort of waking dream she's in. I, there's moments like that that transcend a sort of amateur or underground filmmaking and it. It really, you know, takes me somewhere else and it took me somewhere else at the time. Yeah. I think it also kind of prepared me for seeing my first underground movies in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Sure, that sure. Makes sense, you know? yeah, that makes sense. Uh, then I already mentioned uh, uh, The Sadist, and thank you for reminding me. It was Face of Terror. I couldn't remember what title was on it, but, I mean, that film, I think I saw that around the same time I saw Carnival Souls, um, and with what I saw of The Sadist, I could tell it was happening in real time. So it, it had an entirely different cinematic impact on me than Carnival Souls had, and I always thought of those two together, even though they're light years apart. But they were made independently, roughly the same year, um, with almost no means, the sadist is what? A, a junkyard and five, six actors. Yep. Yeah. And it's just a brilliant movie. And then later I realized when I finally got to see the whole thing, thank you, Joe, thank you, Johnny Legend, um, I realized that Vilmos Zygmunt was part of the chemistry of that. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, yeah. The way that movie is shot is just amazing, you know? Um, so, uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, this is, I'm if I haven't shown my colors yet, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. So Bonnie and Clyde, I mean, seeing Bonnie and Clyde in the theater, and I saw it 
on its first release when it was getting terrible reviews. And I loved it. I thought it was just an incredible movie. And it took, I think Warner re-released it with a new campaign. Am I? Well, they did because, you know, people came back and started taking a second look. And of course, also because, you know, the kids, bless them. Uh, I was, was, that was starting, you. starting to talk yeah. about it and, and see it and all that. I, I, I was excited to see it because I was a big fan of Mickey one, which was the picture that Arthur Penn and, uh, and uh, Warren Beatty had done earlier. Yeah, uh, which I didn't get to see until about six years ago. Yeah, well, it was it was uh, it was a seminal movie if you were in college. Believe me, I mean, it was like God. This is what I want to do with my life. Um, but that, and then of course, you know, Bonnie and Clyde was. It, it became this tremendous uh, cultural event after being essentially thrown away because another picture, yeah, another yeah. picture Jack Warner didn't like. <laughs> well, and I remember the audience I saw it with. There were maybe six of us in the theater. Yeah. Um, I was dropped off by a relative to see it because I asked to see it and they had no adult discretion. So they dropped me off to see it. This is before the ratings existed. So there wasn't anything in right. the ad that made it look you know, dangerous. Um, and, and that was the gateway drug to all of the Arthur Penn films. I mean, I loved everything from the chase to Missouri breaks. I just think Penn was just a phenomenal filmmaker throughout that whole period. And Mickey was the Mickey one was the one I had the hardest time tracking down. It was almost impossible to see for a long, long yeah. time. Yeah, it was. Um, did Did you like it finally? Say again. Did you like it finally when you saw it? I loved it. I oh, loved okay. Mickey. Yeah, I love Mickey one. I'm like, I, I have never seen it. I am I am sitting on the is an Arrow I think Blu-ray that came out a little while ago. It just it gets such a bad rap that oh, no. that every time I sit down to watch something I haven't seen before I look at Mickey one and then I go. <gasps> So you guys are the first people I've heard to. Oh no, it's uh, wonderful. First of all, you should look at my trailer from Hell review yeah. <laughs> on our own site. By the way, is that a website? Easily I don't available know. for free. <laughs> but it's like it's it's a like it's like jazz. It's an American new wave film, and that's what that's what got the bad. Oh, well, what am I? No, oh, actually, just, you're you're. Uh, it's it's absolutely like jazz. That is okay. It is it is. Jazz. I actually think it was Joe's commentary that that inspired me to buy the Blu-ray now. Oh, but, but not I, to watch it. But I need that extra push to watch it. I will do it. Track that puppy. And will, the yes. Make the time. If you're a Herd Hatfield fan, it's a picture <laughs> for you. Oh well, no, I, I wish you'd said that earlier. Uh, and I, you know, Penn Penn had an interesting career because some people loved his, you know, like he had a huge hit with Little Big Man and Bonnie and Clyde ended up being a huge hit. But I was when I first saw Missouri Breaks, I thought that was one of the best westerns I've ever seen. I dragged friends to it. And it has these moments, like I love that little soliloquy that Harry Dean Stanton has about why he shot his dad, you mm. know. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know where you guys are with Missouri Breaks, but man, I, I, oh, I, I like it a lot. Yeah, I, I saw it as a child. My father kept taking me to wildly inappropriate movies and was left hey. mystified by it, as I was by you know Nashville and every other goddamn <laughs> thing he took me to. But, but sure than Nashville at least, he he took me to Nashville three times. Um, I love the music, but, uh, yeah, I went back finally when it came out on, on Blu-ray several years ago and I, I watched it again and I was like, holy shit, this is, forget my reaction. I was a child. Obviously it wasn't for me, but I don't even understand the panning it got. I mean, it's unusual, but it wasn't what they, it wasn't what they expected from those stars. I guess. It was about Nicholson and it was about Brando. Yeah. Yeah. Who this are is both not great. the movie we thought they would. They are so good at it. But to me, but to me, those stars were about not knowing what the next film was going to be. Right. Like, yes, I, exactly. 
you think about what Nicholson was doing, not just as an actor, but as a director, with yeah. like Ivy said, and going Brando, south. You know, he was never. I think the thing I'd seen him in before Missouri Breaks was Burn, which is a brilliant movie. Yeah, amazing film. Oh, the, yeah. uh, the Italian film. Yeah. Um, so to me, you know, I, I would go to their films not knowing what it was going to be, and that was the fun of it. I had no yeah. expectations. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, then I got to mention Leone. I mean, <clears throat> I, I, I grew up in the 60s. I know the James Bond films were big. I did see them all, but it was a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and once upon a time in the West. That I mean, I, that to me was the essence of cinema. Were those four movies? And I had to, I had to take a bus to Montreal to see Once Upon a Time in the West because it wasn't playing anywhere around where we lived, but it was playing in Montreal. <laughs> um, and uh, those Leone films. I mean, they changed everything about how I understood stories, how I understood film, how I understand the power of the image, the power of the close-up. Um, you, you, if you're looking for it, you'll see a lot of the, the flavoring of that in my comics work. I even copped sure. the lettering that they used, that the United Artists promo department used for Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more for all the Swamp Thing story titles. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> you'll the titles, you'll go, oh, now I recognize that lettering font. It's, it's, I called it the Leone font. I don't know what, what it really is. but You know, all, um, those, all those dollars pictures were released in America the same year. Yeah, 67. I was yep. 12. Yep. 12 and 13. And for oh, that that dollars was, was several years old already. And they had yeah, already I, made a sequel to it, which also hadn't been released. You know? Right. And then United Artists just said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This could be a James Bond thing for us. That's it. That's it. I remember those posters that didn't, the man with no name is coming, or right. they were just like a pistol, a sombrero, a hat. Um, yeah. But, that, but the movies came through in spades. And those got vilified. Those were... And the critics hated them. I still remember one of the New York critics misquoting Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. <laughs> he says, at one point, a character says, gangrene is eating my leg and my eye. And I'm reading it going, no, he says, not my eyes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but they hated those movies so much. And they didn't seem like overly violent films. They me. hated the concept of European Westerns. They, they, the whole, the, the, they were offended that the Europeans would be making Westerns. Right. And it's a good thing they didn't see the Karl May Westerns. because those <laughs> Well, were... <laughs> if they did, they would have given the same reviews. Uh, but that, also, they were also I, upending the sort of American perspective on those things. Well, there, and it was that the, the James Bond influence was that they were anti-heroes. Right. When the first sure. James Bond movie came out, Dr. No, the fact that he could shoot people and it was okay yeah. was a huge deal. Yeah. It was a big yeah. deal. But then if we said, it's okay, yeah, President Kennedy reads them. So right. it's okay. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Um, I just want to plug, if we're talking about Sergio Leone, there's, there's an Indonesian filmmaker uh, right now called um, Willy Surye, who's got a movie called Marlena, the Murderer in Four Acts. I don't know if have you seen this yet. Um, you can see it on Amazon Prime. It's, I don't want to, her use of widescreen and just her, her visual sense, um, I, I saw it, the first thing that came to my mind was Sergio Leone, absolutely <laughs> stunning visual sense. Um, the movie's amazing, but worth worth checking out. Uh, just gorgeous, but reminds me of, of Leone in some ways. I, you know, for me, growing up in the 60s, really the two key filmmakers for me, I've got to count Ray Harryhausen, because he's my hero, and he yeah. was my hero as a kid growing up. But Bava and then Leone were sort of the two gods for me of visual storytelling, sure, you know? And sure. everything about their films worked for me 
Um, even their strangest movies really worked for me. Maybe not Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs, but, you know, the rest of the bombs. <laughs> that's not his fault. I know that's not his fault, right? And there was also something I learned later in college that I wanted to mention, which was um, uh, when I went to Johnson State College, I was there to study art. I was hoping to do comics, but it's a little college, 500 students. You're a freshman. The seniors get all the art classes. So I ended up having to take theater. And I'd done a lot of theater in high school, but I didn't want to act anymore. So I got into tech theater and I was handed uh, our textbook, which was A Method of Lighting the Stage. It's written by Stanley McCandless. He was a Yale professor and he wrote this book in 32. And I'm reading the book for my homework assignment and I'm realizing this is where Mario Bava got his um, aesthetic for lighting, for use of color and lighting. And McCandless laid out this theory that you've got to use color, uh, alternating colors from two sides to fully uh, present the actor, not just as a dimensional form on the stage that won't look flat, but also to communicate emotion to the audience. And all I could think of was some of the Baba sequences where characters are walking down a corridor and it's red on one side of their face and it's green on the other right, side. Of their right, right, sure. And it was like, oh my God, Baba's like, he had taken McCandless theory from the 30s and he had taken it so much further with his films. Um, and that also got me revisiting all the Baba films. Um, while I was running the film program at Johnson State College, I rented every Baba film. I think we did the first Baba retrospective. It would have been in 74 and 75 because almost all his films were available on 16 millimeter except the really oddball ones like Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. Um, and the westerns yeah you can see the you know uh, the the uh, ford alamo film do you have the, the tim lucas book i do i do i contributed a bit i was the guy that had the ads for carnage from the boston showing of what became switch of the death nerve um, yeah i tim's a, a dear dear friend of mine and i love that book and i i mailed tim my ads that i'd saved from the boston globe and boston herald saying here you need these more than i need them right um, yeah. All right. Let's and the what's the book? The Mario Bava. All, the all the colors of the dark. Yeah. Just want just want to get the plug in there. And it, yeah, yeah. And it, and it only weighs eight hundred pounds. Yeah. If you drop it, you <laughs> could kill a pet. Don't drop um, it on your foot or your pet. <laughs> um, also, same time the Leone films were hitting, I uh, I saw One Million Years BC, and I think Don Chafee is a really underrated director and. I said this in print in Video Watchdog, and I'll say it again. That to me was the Dr. Zhivago of monster movies. I <laughs> still love One Million Years BC, the Hammer remake. I, I just think it's a wonderful movie. Um, uh, and it's got this amazing, epic, romantic sweep to it. The fact that Hammer and all the filmmakers involved took it seriously <laughs> when it would have been so easy to make this ridiculous movie. That was one of, that was almost as important as the Leone films to me. And that may sound crazy, but Akita, 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 Akita. <laughs> At one point they actually use a Greek word when the turtle is coming up on the beach, Raquel Welch goes Archelon, which is the Greek name for that species of turtle. So a little bit of Greek in there too. Um, then I saw a movie, we saw a lot of movies in high school that they would show, uh, at local colleges and we would get a ride out there. I saw a movie called Dutchman. Oh, I was um, Al, uh, Al Freeman Jr. Al Freeman Jr. Yeah. And Shirley. Yeah. Knight, and it's, it's Anthony Harvey's first film. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, man who directed A Lion in Winter with mm-hmm. his next film. And Dutchman was this scathing. It's only an hour long, and, and it's another lost film. I mean, Now, it's just now a- on video, I believe. You can now get it. Legally? I believe so. It I'll- came out once on DVD from Image mm-hmm. in 2000, and I bought it when it was out, and it was out of print within about three months. I, was I could be, to- well, tell, tell, tell people about it. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, the Dutchman is amazing. It's a it's a Leroy Jones play before Jones had changed his name to Amiri Barak. Uh, he was a um, beat poet. He had edited really influential uh, poetry journals. He had written the first books in English on jazz, and he became a playwright. And Dutchman was his first or second play. And it's about um, uh, a young black man who gets on the subway in New York and this white woman who's kind of stalking him gets on the subway And it's a seduction that plays out on the screen until she turns on him. And then he explodes and it becomes a horror movie in the last five minutes. I mean, it's just a brilliant scathing piece of cinema. And they have to shoot it in London because no American uh, studio and no subway in New York would allow them to shoot it. They have to recreate right. a subway platform and car in a studio in London. And it's got a score by John Barry, the guy who was scoring, you know, Born Free and the Bond films and so on. Um, it's just an amazing movie. One hour long. And uh, yeah, I'm just showing Joe oh. that it, you can get you it on Amazon like it lot, here. Though. You have to like it a lot. Well, I'm uh, it's, it's used, going for well, here, if you get it new, it's $502. Yeah, I told Used you. very good is $280. <laughs> um, I, I tracked down through uh, a friend of mine who did an interview with um, uh, one of the performers for Shock Express magazine. I tracked down um, the lead actress, Shirley, remind me of her name. Shirley Knight. Shirley Knight. Shirley Knight, thank you. Um, and she put me in touch with the widow of the producer. And they granted me permission to show the film at Appalachian State University down in Boone, North Carolina. And we double billed it with permission of Image 10, Rush Striner. We contacted him. We showed Dutchman and Night of the Living Dead back to back. Wow. Wow. And the reason for wanting to show them back to back is uh, they were both released within a year by the same company, Continental. It was Walter Reed's company. Mm -hmm. Right. And Dutchman hardly got any play because, like Roger Corman's The Intruder, you know, this isn't a commercial proposition to show yeah. a, a race-baiting, hate-mongering movie uh, to in a theater. And it was only an hour long, right? And, and that just killed it. And then Night of the Living Dead, a year later, comes out from the same company. And part of my fascination is the last sequence in Dutchman, when they're carrying the black character off the subway car, is almost replicated by that still shot of Ben oh, Night of the Living Dead, yeah. yeah. Jones lifted onto the bonfire. And I'm like, oh my God. Um, Romero never saw the movie. I mean, I asked yeah. Romero, I asked the people at Image 10, they'd never seen it. But sometimes these coincidences, you know, coincidental things happen in cinema history. Sure. And it's real. You know, there is something that was happening there. Um, two, well, three other films I'll mention. Two short films. Um, I first saw David Lynch's Alphabet, his short film from 67. Oh, yeah, sure. At a student Kodak film festival I was part of. Because I was one of those kids that had an 8mm camera and I was making my own wonky stop-motion clay movies and stuff. And uh, Alphabet was something Kodak had picked up. 
for this student film festival and they showed it again and again. So that was my exposure to David Lynch. Um, and Kenneth Anger's, I'm going to pronounce this wrong because my French is poor, Eau d'Artifice from 1953, the one with the midget woman walking around all the fountains in Paris or somewhere in France. Uh, those are my two underground films I saw. And around the same week, I also saw Peter Watkins' The War Game. Ah, yeah, which we just, just talked about. about on our uh, with Alex Cox. Oh. Yes. Okay, then I'll leave it there. I mean, the war game, you know, it was shown by an anti nuclear group at our high school and it was scathing stuff. Yep. And, yeah. Uh, it's also the first mockumentary I think I saw, other than that weird news, fake news clip about uh, harvesting spaghetti off of tree limbs that they showed <laughs> some April Fool's news show in the early 60s. Uh, the war game made me understand the power of, of mockumentaries. Um, and so, although it's, yeah, hard to think of it as a mock documentary, but for sure. <laughs> but oh. yeah, it's an amazing film. But Stephen, um, I, I well, before we we are we are run out of time here. Do you do you have one more you that want to say us with on the way out the door? Or? <laughs> uh, I'll just list. I'll just list them. Okay. Two thousand one, Colossus, Corbin Project. Yes. Night of the Living Dead. Yes. Paul Bartel's Secret Cinema. Oh. Um, Peck and Paws, The Wild Bunch. And that was, I could name all the Peck and Paw movies after that. Uh, the next big one for me was Donald Camell or Nicholas Roeg with Performance. And then Nicholas Roeg with Walkabout, Don't Look Now, and The Man Who Fell to Earth. Alan Moore was a huge Nicholas Roeg fan as well. Oh, sure. And when we started on Swamp Thing, you know, that first story we did together, The Anatomy Lesson, is pretty much our Roeg film. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's structured. You know, if you revisit it, thinking about, you know, don't look now. The Nicholas Roeg film. Uh, I think you'll see. Um, and and reading Alan's script was just hair raising for me because I recognized Alan was doing in 23 pages of commercial comics, the closest thing I'd ever seen to what Nicholas Roeg did to me with his movies. Oh, so, wow. um, another underground. Stan Brakhage's The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes, which he shot in a major metropolitan morgue. And it's a procession of autopsies, but it's not the gore aspect. It's not a gore film. It's a poet with a camera meditating on death for an hour. Um, that film blew my mind. The Devils. And then the big three of the 70s, I'll leave you with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yep. Um, that's the closest I ever saw to a nightmare other than a racer hit. Um, and I saw it when it opened. Little theater in Morrisville, Vermont called The Bijou, which is still there. And uh, there were four of us in the theater, and Texas Chainsaw blew our mind. And as we were leaving the theater, a school bus pulled up. The local basketball team had just won, and they were celebrating by going to Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre. Um, Walter Hill's Hard Times. Oh, yeah. And finally, David Cronenberg, The Brood. Uh, that impacted me like no movie I'd ever seen before or since. And what you have, a great way to segue out, you've got a, a, mom, a book coming out about, correct? Is yeah, 600 pages plus on the brew. Wow. Wow. Okay, but, when when you know. is that coming out? Um, it's coming out from uh, Electric Dreamhouse and PS Publications in Britain. And they're they're proofing the PDF right now. And they're shooting to get it out April, May. So it'll be out pretty soon. Wonderful. Right. Wonderful. Well, listen, I, thank you so very much for coming in. It is uh, such a thrill walking through your brain with you. Hey. Um, <laughs> These are the movies that made me, so you asked for it. Oh, that's we right. We asked for it. <laughs> yes, we did. Steven, thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. Josh, Joe, yes. it's, been a, it's been an honor.
Oh, it's been a pleasure Thanks. having you, sir. Take care. Sorry for every time. No. no, it's okay. Okay, I'll cut it. <laughs> yes. We'll cut, all, we'll cut all of Joe's stuff out. Thank you. Bye. Our show was recorded in beautiful downtown Burbank. The official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.